We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, this is Robin Jones-Gunn. I am in studio today with my friend, Cheryl Broderson. And guess what? What? I have one of the most interesting women to talk about. Well, I was hoping. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's really interesting about this woman is um, her name is Catherine Ruth Beard. And I was really excited because she ministered in Arizona to the Navajo and Hopi Indians and went there as a missionary. And so did my aunt. And they were born oh, really? just about, my aunt was born in 1905 and Catherine was born in 1908. So because of that similarity, I just got so, so excited. Certainly they knew each other, don't you think? I'm sure they did. Yes. Because my my aunt, her name was actually Louise Webster, but uh, she went by E.C. Because a little child couldn't say Louise. And that's what everyone <laughs> called her, Louise. And so he called her E.C. And she just loved it. So from then she went by E.C. And everyone had to call her E.C. Um, she just always, my aunt, just always loved children so much. Mm. And that's a lot of what you, uh, Catherine Ruth Beard was a lot like my Aunt Easy, uh, even to the point that Catherine Beard was five feet tall and 100 pounds. And my Aunt Easy was probably about 4'11 and probably um, closer to 200 pounds. <laughs> but, you know, this is why we keep... Pointing out when we've hit a couple of women who were six feet tall or really because typically women in the eras that we've been talking about are just like your aunt. Tiny. Yes. Tiny, tiny, tiny. In fact, you know, I've told you before my mom was adopted, but her mother, which was Isi's real mother, biological mother, um, was also four foot 11. And my mom's adopted dad was five foot two. So my mom towered over them at 12 years old. And I said, mom, because my mom was five, eight. <laughs> You didn't know you were adopted. <laughs> but <laughs> Could have been your first clue. <laughs> yes. And, you know, my mom and dad, for all I know, could have known Catherine Ruth Beard because um, she lived for a really, really long time. But let me get into this story. Yes, yes, yes. So Catherine was born on May 7th, 1908 in Wellington, Kansas. And her father was an engineer for the Santa Fe Railroad. Again, the Santa Fe Railroad. We used to go to Arizona every summer so my dad could uh, speak and help my mom run, uh, sorry, help my aunt run uh, a camp called Friendly Acres that my aunt would have every all through the summer, but my dad volunteered two weeks. And we would always see the Santa Fe Railroad crossing. And mm. I mean, my dad would always point out, there's the Santa Fe Railroad. So all of this just got me so happy. I, I love Arizona, especially Williams and Flagstaff, but I'll get there. So he was an engineer for the Santa Fe Railroad. And as an engineer and train conductor, he made really, really good money. However, a good salary, even in the early 20th century, did not ensure happiness. Catherine grew up in a Christian household. She and her family were very involved in their church. In fact, her mother was described as exuberant, beautiful, and energetic. And she loved all three of her children, Lauren, Helen, and her youngest, Catherine. Catherine had many happy memories of her mother playing with all three of them. However, when Catherine was seven or eight, her mother contracted tuberculosis. Mm. And from that time on, she was unable to play or take care of her children. So her father hired a nanny named Hattie. Hattie's parents had formerly been slaves. 
Hattie was so loved by these girls, and she took excellent care of them. When Kate, Catherine's mother, passed away in 1916, Hattie continued on with the household until every child was grown up. John Beard, Catherine's father, never remarried. So during Catherine's senior year of high school, her father died of a heart attack as he was driving a train. Oh. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. Catherine and her siblings were given a small inheritance along with a lifetime pass to ride the Santa Fe for free. Catherine wanted to go to college um, because there weren't many job opportunities for women in the early 1900s. Uh, You could be uh, maybe a teacher or a secretary. So she enrolled at a state teacher's college in Emporia, Kansas. And after one year of schooling, Catherine felt that teaching was not the right direction that the Lord had for her life. So she began Mm -hmm. to pray. And she realized that she was feeling called to be a missionary. She remembered like when she was a young girl at church, always hearing the missionary stories. And those were her favorite, like her favorite Sundays and how God was working among the people of foreign lands. So with the money that she had left from her father's will, Catherine enrolled at Northwestern Bible School in Minneapolis. It was no problem getting there. She had a lifetime of railroad passes. <laughs> That's true. However, once she got there, she realized she didn't have enough money to pay for school and boarding. For the first semester, she was able to work in the kitchen at the school. She took joy in whatever was assigned to her, even if it was peeling potatoes, chopping onions, or doing the dishes. She loved being there. And she loved studying the Bible and all her classes, and she excelled in all her classes. It was at this time that she began to add this addendum to all her prayers. At any cost, at any loss, and at any cross, I will follow you. Oh, that's good. And this became part of every single prayer. Mm. Her enthusiasm brought her to the attention of Miss Ackham, Ackham, who was the dean of the girls. She offered Catherine a job with a wealthy woman who had asked if one of the students would work in her home. Catherine was excited about this new opportunity. However, it turned out to be a nightmare. The woman did not pay Catherine, nor did she feed Catherine. Catherine was given a room without light or heating. She was required to clean constantly and found herself exhausted and without time or light to study in a room at night. Not only that, but she was covered with welts from the bed bugs. Oh, this is so sad. Isn't that sad? Catherine didn't want to complain because she was afraid she might jeopardize her schooling by doing so. And also, she had her mantra, right? At any cost, Mm. at any loss, and at any cross, I will follow you. However, one day at school, Miss Acomb, I guess, A-C-O-M-B, Acomb, noticed the welts on Catherine's body. She called Catherine to her office, and Catherine ended up pouring out the whole horrid ordeal. Miss Acomb then called the wealthy woman, and just she let her have it. She demanded that this woman pay the money owed to Catherine as well as make restitution by paying for Catherine's room and board at the college while she recovered. Wow. The next year, another wealthy woman applied for help. Uh, You can imagine Catherine was a little concerned. (laughs) So they decided to just have a probationary period where Catherine agreed to go over there one day a week. Very smart. Well, the work was to watch a two and four year old. Catherine fell in love with these two children. And after one week, she was hired full time. And not only that, she was given a room with her own bathroom and she had all her meals with the family. 
And this house that they had was right on a lake in Minneapolis. And she was able to sit on the shore of the lake, watch the girls play, and do most of her work. What a completely different experience. And she absolutely loved it. I mean, it was just one of her, her favorite times. In her last year of college, Catherine began to feel called to minister to Native Americans. She was overcome with a growing burden for the plight they had suffered and the mistreatment by the early Americans. Growing up in Kansas, get this, she had never met anyone who was a Native American. Isn't that crazy? That's you would think. interesting, mm-hmm. yes. Then one Sunday, as she was praying, she met a Christian man from the Hopi tribe. As they conversed, he said to her, oh, come out to Hopi Navajo land and help us. Catherine was now 26 years old and, as I mentioned before, about five feet tall and less than 100 pounds. Yet she was strong and ready to serve the Lord. The school made arrangements for her to work on a reservation in Arizona, and her contact there would be a man named Harvey. Catherine had very little money, but she had her train pass. She made her way to Winslow, Arizona via the Santa Fe train. Remember, they used to say Santa Fe all the way. She was picked up by Harvey and another young man he claimed was his son. Harvey was from the Navajo tribe. He threw Catherine's belongings in the back of his truck and headed out. They traveled some 80 miles over bumpy roads, and Catherine realized that with every mile, any signs of people and civilization were less and less frequent till there was absolutely none. I mean, no lights, no nothing, and they were on a dirt road. Harvey barely spoke to her, but he conversed with the young man in Navajo. Finally, they arrived at a Hogan. Now, Hogan is like a round hut with a dirt floor and a hole in the roof. Harvey pulled Catherine's suitcase and locker out of the back of the truck and left them there, along with Catherine. And Catherine realized she was in the middle of nowhere, except the Hogan. So she walks inside. There weren't any other? Nothing. It wasn't a village. There was nothing else around. There's just this Hogan. Nothing else. So Catherine went inside, and it was completely empty, except for some ashes in the middle of the floor where the fire had once been, and the skeleton of what looked to Catherine to be a rabbit that had been roasted. Now, it was getting late in the afternoon, and Catherine was cold, and she began to shiver. And she knew she was at least, at this point, 60 miles from Winslow. And there was, she couldn't walk back. It was almost dark. And so she did what she would do when she was in trouble. She began to pray. She knew that where she was, there was no one to hear her except for God. If she called out, if she cried, if she screamed, nobody would hear. As she began to pray, her prayers turned to praise and a great peace overwhelmed her. The next thing she knew, she heard Harvey's truck pull up outside the Hogan. Harvey retrieved her suitcase and locker without saying a word, and they were off again. This time they stopped at another Hogan with an elderly couple inside. Now, he's not communicating to Catherine what he's doing or where they're going or what's going on. And this couple couldn't speak any English. They were a Navajo couple. And through gestures and smiles, they indicated um, that uh, they were working for Harvey and took care of his sheep. So they did all this sign language and pointed and, you know, were kind of— communicating in that way. And they fed her fried bread. And this fried bread turned out to be one of Catherine's favorite, favorite things that she had had 
ever um, till the end of her life. If you asked her what her favorite food was, she'd say, oh, fried bread. <laughs> she just loved it. And they gave her hot coffee to drink. Then Harvey came back, motioned her back to the truck, and this time they drove to Harvey's house. Harvey was one of the richest men on the reservation. He lived in a four-bedroom house unlike any of the other tribe members. The house was in the midst of a village poised on a mesa. Now, for those of you who don't know, I do because I live in a place called Costa Mesa. And it's um, it's like a flat plain that um, sits kind of like if you took the top off of a mountain and you just flattened it out. Um, and it's got, you know, it's like a mountain that's flat on top. And well, and also the Spanish word for table is mm-hmm. mesa. Mesa. Well, you can picture it's a tabletop. Exactly. You know, like with legs, only the legs are crags, you know, the cliff. <laughs> yes. So this mesa was about 200 feet wide and 1,000 feet long. Can you believe that? And that's their village. And the Houses in the village were pueblos, or houses that are connected together and carved into a rock. And the village was called Polaca. Now, are they made out of adobe, like the? I think they're adobe and rock bulb, mm-hmm. but they're all connected with each carved other, carved out mm-hmm. on the side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this little mesa. Well, immediately Catherine began evangelizing the people in the village. She would leave Harvey's house with her auto harp or violin and begin to play with the, uh, the violin and the auto harp. Okay, but wait, do you think that they were just testing her? Like, here, here's nothing. Stay in this Hogan as a little restaurant. Well, there's more to this story. Okay. You'll see. It's perplexing. Yes, and you'll understand in just a minute. Okay, okay. So the children spoke English, and they adored her, and they would ask her questions. And she would gather them around in a circle and tell them Bible stories. Um, soon the parents also adored her and Catherine even organized the men of the village into a band with Catherine as their lead and their (laughs) conductor. One day, Catherine borrowed a horse and rode it to visit the old couple that had given her the coffee and frayed bread. She had an interpreter with her as well as quilt blocks for the wife to make into a blanket because she had noticed when she was there, the wife only had like sheepskins. And animal skins, but there was no real blanket. And quilt squares, you know, from old clothes, they were um, a prized possession at that time. So the woman was so excited. Through an interpreter, Catherine shared the good news of God's son, Jesus. The older couple listened intently. And after Catherine finished, they prayed with her to receive Jesus. When Harvey found out that she had borrowed a horse and visited the older couple, he was livid. Now, you've got to remember, she's living at Harvey's house in a room. Mm-hmm. And things at Harvey's house were not good. Turns out Harvey was an evil, evil man. And he was set on seducing Catherine. Oh. So all of that had been part of like oh, creating wow. a dependency and trying to be her savior. She spent every day and night trying to avoid him. But there was no escape from the Mesa. I mean, it's 200 <laughs> feet wide by a thousand feet long and the only um the only way out was either harvey's truck or the mail truck but she couldn't take the mail truck because guess what harvey was the postmaster oh so she couldn't get out now living in harvey's house was his second wife she was a white woman who had come to the reservation as a registered nurse she was terrified of harvey and served as a slave to him, raising his three children from his first marriage. Um, There was no talking or reasoning with her. She was scared. 
Um, he was also abusive, as you can imagine, to her. Yes. There was another resident in the house, a retired missionary named Iva. Iva's husband had died, and she was about to leave Polaka when Catherine arrived. She felt that she should stay just to protect Catherine. Mm. Iva then wrote a letter to some missionaries working in another village close by. Their names were the Stockleys, and she snuck it in the post. As soon as the Stockleys got the letter, Mr. Stockley made his way to Palaka and rescued the two women. Catherine spent the next two years living with the Stockleys. It was at this time she made the acquaintance of a young man named Bruce. Bruce was half Mexican and part Jemez, Native American. He had been raised among the Navajos. He spoke fluent English and a few of the native languages. He was also an ardent Christian and a great navigator. He and Catherine began to work together. They shared a coal shed, each with their own room. Catherine would read her Bible by a kerosene light at night or play her violin or auto harp and watch the rats scurry around the floor. She didn't care. <laughs> this was missionary life, and well, she had and told Jesus. That training, right. That's right. At Early any on. cost, mm. at any loss, at any cross, I will follow you. During this time, Catherine began to nurse the sick. Tuberculosis was ravaging the village, but for some reason, she and Bruce were immune to it, perhaps because of that early exposure to her mother. Mm -hmm. The solution among the tribes was to wrap the dying person up in a blanket and take them out to the wilderness to die. Catherine intervened. She began to nurse the sick, and when they did die, she would dig five-foot deep graves with Bruce's help to bury the dead. Can you imagine this little tiny woman burying um, these bodies with Bruce's help? The graves had to be five feet deep so the coyotes would not dig up the bodies. She also began this ministry of saving babies, especially twins from infanticide, which was uh, at that time a practice in the Native American um, tribes. Really? If mm -hmm. there's twins, then only one? One was considered live? evil. And so oh, she began to take in the twins, and then the Stockleys would raise these children. And when the, the villagers saw that the children lived and became these productive children and that uh, the Stockleys and that Catherine loved them so much, their whole—and and that she nursed their sick— their whole um, attitude towards the Stockleys and towards Catherine began to change to favor. Um, she was known as— Adzan Yazi, or which is Navajo for little lady, often her name was called Little Lady with the Black Book, and you can guess uh -huh. what the Black Book yes, was, yes. is her Bible, or Little Lady who says she is sorry, because Catherine would often say, oh, I'm so sorry, when she heard about a tragedy or misfortune that had befallen one of the tribe's people or the tribe itself. Mm. For five years, the Stockleys had been petitioning the chief and tribe to give them a plot of land to build a church. The subject had been cunningly avoided until Catherine arrived and began ministering. The chief called a meeting after two years of Catherine being there, and the whole tribe was asked to come. Then they voted whether these white people should be given land to build a church the whole tribe, the whole tribe, unanimously voted to give them five acres of land just 16 miles north of the village of Arabi, which is where they were living. The area where the land was, um, that they were given, was aptly named Hard Rock. And 16 miles is a long way to it go. Is. It is. It is. 
that's a big space between the village and mm-hmm. now did she stay living in the village or well tell me tell me what did they do <laughs> well it um she she went and helped build this church and this missionary outpost and it's still a missionary outpost and church today and it's run and pastored by the Navajo tribe that's amazing because their understanding of what she needed and their sympathy was it seems like it was birthed out of her faithfulness to be showing them her mercy and love. No wonder she's saying, I'm sorry mm-hmm. all the time. Her yes. Compassion was compassion. right on the surface. That's what she was known that's for. That's how they came to mm-hmm. trust her. So two of the many stories from her time was once she and Bruce were ready to bury this man. He was wrapped up in the blanket when all of a sudden he sat up and started talking to them and they realized he wasn't dead. So Bruce began to share the gospel with the man, and the man then prayed to receive Jesus. Then he looked up toward the sky and said, I see heaven. Oh, it's a beautiful place. I want to go there. Then he closed his eyes and went there. Okay, that's amazing. Isn't that the best story? <laughs> There's always a chance, right? Just Isn't there? Wow. Another was a story of a, of a young girl named Augusta. Mm. She was about 16 years old. And her grandmother had sold her to marry the old witch doctor. And the old witch doctor was mean. And he had like five wives already. But the grandmother had gambling debts. And the only way she could pay off her gambling debts, the grandmother, was to sell Augusta. So Augusta did not want to marry this man at all or be trapped in you know such a marriage. She was really, really smart. So she, shot, uh, she sought out Catherine. And Catherine sent her away to a boarding school to be educated. The family found out, and they went to the boarding school to get her back. However, Augusta refused to return with them and finished her education going on to a promising career. And so that's another story. Now, after 10 years of nonstop service, working 12 to 14 hours days at 36 years old, Catherine was exhausted. She took a sabbatical to see her family in Kansas. And, of course, she traveled on the... Santa Fe all the way. Santa Fe all the way because it was still free for her. Lifetime pass. In Kansas at church, she ran into one of her old friends, Emmo Wardlow. And she convinced Emmo, I-M-O, Emmo, to come with her to Arizona and help her with the work. Emmo um, did, and the two women became lifetime co-workers. Um. This time, when they returned, Catherine and Emmo uh, returned to Arizona. Um, they didn't go to Winslow. They went to Flagstaff. And as they were getting off the train, they noticed that many Native Americans had moved to Flagstaff. And they realized it's because of, it was because of World War II. There was a base right near called Belmont, just outside of Flagstaff. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. And the base had built 140 houses for the Native Americans. And they were all filled. An average house contained mother, father, uncle, aunt, grandparents, and children. Mm. There were 1,500 people occupying 140 houses. So um, also, uh, the Native Americans proved to be one of the greatest assets um, to the United States Army during World War II as code breakers. Yes. And trackers. Yes. I mean, they were just the Indian, uh, sorry, the Native American tribes was just known for their um, adeptness at hunting and at um, strategies. Just they became such an asset. 
So by this time, a group of Native Americans um, uh, were asking her to come on the base. But every time she and Emma would try to get on the base, they had to go through all this red tape. And it was just, it took them hours. So by the time they got into the base, it was time to leave. And she was getting really, really frustrated. Also, there was no ministry for the Native Americans, but there was ministries for the white people. In fact, the white people even had a church, but nothing for the Native Americans. So Emma and Catherine decided that they were going to go to the top. She heard that Colonel Curtis was in charge of the base, so they made an appointment with Colonel Curtis. And they explained to the colonel their work and what they wanted. He authorized both Emma and Catherine as Protestant missionaries to do whatever work among the Hopi and Navajo Native Americans at Belmont. Catherine and Emma set to work. They set up Sunday schools for both adults and children. They also organized Boy Scout and Girl Scout troops for the children. Thousands of Native Americans would later testify that they came to know the love of Jesus and Jesus as their Savior through the efforts of these two tireless women. They continued their outreach all through World War II and the Korean War. Now, after the Korean War, um, you know, Belmont is not as productive as it was. And Catherine and Emma, along with a man named Dr. Walter L. Wilson, decided to build um, a mission house in Flagstaff. And they did. And they named it Flagstaff Mission to the Navajo. The mission house is still running in Flagstaff today, but it's run by the Navajo. So I, I love that. She not only raised yes. them up, but they took over the mission. Mm-hmm. So Catherine, get this, continued to work among the Hopi and Navajo people until she was 93 years old. Wow. And wow. then she retired. To a convalescent home in Sedona, Arizona. And there at the home, she organized Christian meetings and continued to minister the love of Jesus to the staff and patients until she died at 98 years old. So she lived um, almost almost 100 years. Yeah, almost 100 years, but what a passion she had for that people group and to be consistent with her. This, I, I got so far. With this opportunity, okay, and then I'll just start another yes. ministry over here. She was yes. unstoppable. She was unstoppable. It was it was so interesting. It was like a story that had to be told. I'd never heard of her before, but I stumbled upon these biographies of um, little-known women, and I am so excited. They're all on my Kindle, and so I have so many more oh, that I good. can't wait to share <laughs> in weeks to come. So that was Catherine Ruth Beard. And again, I was so excited because my aunt ministered and had a um, camp, Camp Friendly Acres, in Williams, Arizona. So Flagstaff is where we would go to pick up the candy. There was kind of like a price club, which was not price club then, but kind of a warehouse uh, place that my aunt would go. And she would pick up all the candy for the snack bar that she ran at her camp. In Williams, Arizona. So, and I want to try and figure out when I was in high school the camp I bet that our is. youth group went to yes. in Flagstaff. Yes, and it was for the Native American kids. And I was a yes. counselor for a week, and we did all the activities and helped cook in the kitchen and everything. It was a completely different having grown up in Southern California and then being at this camp where just the landscape, everything was so different. 
Mm-hmm. And you had that experience going there so I, many summers. Yes. Well, it was like a forest. You know, driving through Flagstaff yes. was like a forest. And then the same thing when you're going up to um, Williams, Arizona. In fact, there's a train in Williams, Arizona, and it takes you into the base of Grand Canyon. It's just like a day trip, and they really? feed you. I'm dying to do that oh, yes. train. I, I met a lady, and her husband ran the train, and she was like, I can get you passes. And I was like, I want to go. Another train. Another train. Pass for life. That's please. right. Santa Fe all the way. <laughs> so that was um, Catherine, Catherine Beard. I'm and so glad you introduced us to her. And I Emo. I know. Imo, however Imo, right. And we got it done in one sitting. That's amazing for us. Yes, lately. we don't usually we no. don't usually finish uh, our stories in one sitting, but it's probably because the information is not that much. I I researched so much, and I found a newspaper article on the uh, Flagstaff Mission, uh, one on Emo um, coming uh, Wardlow coming to help Catherine, and just a newspaper article about the thousands of people that would come to Catherine's Christmas parties, where they gave mm. thousands of. Um, children presents, and I told them the true meaning of Christmas. But that was just about all I had. But her her fame, and not necessarily her fame, but her reputation, um, you know how it says um, that their good works follow? You know, mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what I feel with her, that she is still known today because well, of her love yes. and compassion and work. And what you pointed out is that the— kids that were involved in the ministry she was doing then grew up to continue the work. And it's remarkable how many women we've talked about that what they started is still going. Right. And this is a woman in the United States, you know, and I I love that because when my aunt went to Arizona, it was because none of the men wanted to go at her Bible college. And so she went. Um, Really? mm -hmm. And they were kind of desperate. My aunt used to play a cornet on the corner and then start preaching. She could play a cornet. I guess she was incredible at, you know, kind of a, a trumpet player. Yes. And then she would invite, can you imagine this little less than five foot person standing on a street corner in Arizona? And she said most of the men wore holsters with guns in it and cowboy boots when she went to Arizona. Oh, my. So that was a different era, but I'm so blessed by Catherine's story. And again, Every week, we're coming to you with a different story of women worth knowing and women you probably didn't know about. And I want to thank you for your letters. Uh, You've given us um, quite a few uh, women to research and to talk about. And I just want to thank you. I mean, we have so many still on our list. We we can't wait. And it feels like a privilege to us both to be able to do this because we feel like the women that we talk about maybe didn't get that much notoriety. That wasn't what they were after in their time. But what they've done for us is that um, encouragement of looking at their lives and seeing how they trusted God over and over. Right. We see this. They prayed, just as you said here, yep. with Catherine at that at point any where cost, I don't know what to do. Loss, I think I'll pray. Yes. yes. Um, at any cross, I will follow you. And how God led every single time. It's interesting, too. You know, we did Josephine Butler, and hers was uh, God and a woman are a majority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we had uh, Lillian Trasher, I'm your girl. Yes. And then we had this one. Yes. Cheryl, we need a banner to fly over our lives here. In fact, we're going to work on that. And if you have one, write us at Women (laughs) Worth Knowing, and you can get in touch with us at cccm.com. Follow the links to Women Worth Knowing 
or at graciouswords.com and catch on to the link. And we look forward to hearing from you. And for today on this program, this is Cheryl and Robin Jones-Gunn. Looking same. forward to being with you again. That's right. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones-Gunn. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Robin on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at WWK at CCCM.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Robin Jones-Gunn.